the Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. first hear the term space weather, your first reaction might be that this is a nonsensical term. After all, there's no air in space, so there could be no clouds, no rain, no anything. However, as we shall hear in episode 25, there is such a thing as space weather. We will allow Harlan Spence to explain. Harlan is the director of the Institute for Study of Earth, Oceans and Space at the University of New Hampshire. He is also principal investigator for the Cosmic Ray Telescope on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has been circling the moon since 2009. So uh, good afternoon, everyone, and thanks to the organizers for the opportunity to talk to you today on the topic of space weather. Um, and Heidi actually queued me up. There was no, um, uh, you know, malice of forethought here. Um, and I wanted to start this by saying, if you remember only one notion from my talk, then let me motivate that idea with a quote from um, somebody you probably haven't won't recognize, Charles Dudley Warner. This is a quote um, often attributed to Mark Twain. Um, and so it was Warner who once opined, the weather in New England is a matter about which a great deal is said and very little done. And so in this presentation, my aim is to convince you that when it, when it comes to space weather, there is a similar degree of discussion, but lots is being done about it. And furthermore, lots of science is being done because of it. So with that, uh, let me uh, dive into our discussion and just point out that a lot of this is uh, really informed by my experience as a PI on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. So really a shout out to the LRO team, a shout out to uh, my team as well, who really contributed much to that. So what is space weather? Um, it, it's variability in the environment, space environment that uh, causes disruption to um, te technologic, technological um, 
aspects of our society. Some of it's on space, some of it's on, on Earth. In the context of the moon, though, the space weather I'd like to focus on at the moon really is, I think, um, you can focus on different aspects, but I think the more important ones have to do with um, the solar wind plasma and also energetic charged particles in the form of solar energetic particles and galactic cosmic rays. The solar wind, which does reach the moon's surface, does so in a very interesting way. Uh, it contributes to uh, surface charging. It contributes to the sort of global electric circuit in the uh, near surface environment uh, and therefore has a huge impact on the dust environment. The um, other two forms, and that's what I'm going to focus on uh, mostly in this talk. The first are these episodic events uh, triggered by an eruption on the sun that accelerates uh, yeah, ambient particles in, in the corona and in transit from the corona to um, th throughout the solar system to very, very high energies. Uh, these particles have enough energy that they, uh, they require a fair amount of mass to stop them. And so they penetrate rather deep uh, centimeters into the, um, into the regolith. And because of the characteristics of that, uh, they can actually lead to deep dielectric charging when the um, incident rate exceeds the dielectric breakdown uh, constant and the discharge time. Uh, it also can, the solar energetic particles, the SEPs, can contribute to um, ionizing radiation dose. Uh, they're infrequent, they're intense, they're low energy, so you mostly can shield against them. Uh, and so we need good space weather prediction to be able to know when to do an EVA and when to take shelter. Um, galactic cosmic rays are a whole other beast in themselves. Um, yeah, the, these are extremely energetic coming from uh, deaths of supernova, some of the most exotic uh, uh, events, explosive events in, in our universe. Um, they arrive and travel through our solar system, and they can penetrate very deep meters even into the regolith. Um, and they're of a sort that produces um, very damaging ionizing radiation in terms of biological effects. So we've got these three populations. They're all important for space weather. Um, and there also are opportunities for doing science. My focus today is going to be on the uh, solar particles and galactic cosmic rays, just in the spirit of time. Pick your poison. When do you worry about these? And really, there's nowhere to run and no time to hide. At the times when the uh, galactic cosmic rays are at a minimum, that is at solar maximum. And at solar maximum, that's when solar proton events are most likely. So uh, all things being considered, you know, solar protons are more uh, easily shielded against. And so you could argue that you would prefer to maybe be up during um, solar maximum when galactic cosmic rays are a minimum. Um, I always like to talk about the Wargo axiom, as I call, I, I call it, I, I think, uh, Many of you probably remember Mike Wargo, who was instrumental in some of the early uh, um, return to the moon discussions. And he was always quick to point out that science enables exploration and exploration enables science. And I think all of the instruments on LRO were, were very much um, motivated by a design driven by human exploration, but all of them were also nimble enough for uh, conducting innovative science. 
and that's uh, certainly the case of the uh, cosmic ray telescope for the effects of radiation that uh, uh, that we developed. What are the kinds of things that I'm talking about? So um, you could say lunar science enabled by space weather. What's really going on there? Well, take a galactic cosmic ray and now hit it into the lunar regolith. As it loses energy and buries itself into the regolith, it produces secondary uh, radiation in the form of protons, neutrons, gamma rays, electrons, so forth. The whole zoology of the cascade of uh, high-energy nuclear physics. So the, the part that escapes then becomes a way to look at the underlying regions and the properties of, of that um, energy that escapes in the form of particles or photons tells you something about that material. And so we've already heard about sort of the neutron gamma lunar imaging. That gives you some sense of the um, hydration of the subsurface. Um, what it also does, not only is it a, then now becomes a, uh, a new sort of way of looking at the moon through these secondary albedo particles, it also is a source of secondary radiation, and sometimes that secondary radiation uh, contributes in bad ways. And, and so you can look at the primaries uh, versus the, what we call the albedo coming off. It's not literally photons. It's you know, mostly in the form of um, charged and neutral particles that contribute to the dose. And so um, it, it's a rich interplay between science you can do and the, the physics of the interaction and the, the interaction with humans and robots. Harlan Spence. Just as terrestrial weather forecasts could be improved with better data and advanced computer modelling, there is room to improve space weather forecasting. In February of 2022, Leon Golub offered his ideas on how to do this. Before he does so, I need to explain some terminology. The corona is a region of tenuous but very hot plasma around the sun. It is, indeed, hotter than the visible surface of the sun, that is, the photosphere. A coronal mass ejection is when the sun belches out millions of tons of mainly hydrogen into interplanetary space. EUV is extreme ultraviolet light, which in energy lies between ordinary ultraviolet and X-rays. I'm going to talk about what we consider will be a way of improving space weather forecasts. And the bottom line is we won't know how much improvement you get until you try it. So I'm going to argue for trying it. The topic is the middle corona. The middle corona is, and it's really a not very well observed region. There's a big gap there between the inner corona, where we've developed instruments to see that very well, the outer corona, which has been observed for many, many years and is the basis of forecasts uh, to a large extent. The middle corona, there's actually a very large team of people uh, right now, working on defining what we mean by the middle corona. It, it's basically a region 
of transitions, uh, transition from low beta back to high. Of course, the chromosphere corona transition region goes the other way. Uh, it's a region where the corona transitions from con collisional to radiative excitation, where it transitions from being dominated by closed magnetic structures to predominantly open structures. I will say it's a little bit like the way Justice Potter Stewart wants to find pornography, which is, I know it when I see it. That's where we are with this defining this region. But everything that leaves the sun goes through the middle corona, and there's also flow of energy and mass back down. A CME in the EUV uh, from AIA, we have observations going from hot lines, uh, iron 21, down to cool lines, iron 9 and 10. And the visibility of the, a departing CME, you have the CME very visible in the 131 channel. Nothing at all is happening in the 171 angstrom euv channel which happens to be one that's one of the more common ones that's seen there are other events that are just the opposite you see them in the cool channel not in the hot channel the euv with the temperature discrimination allows you a more comprehensive view of the departing event as these events depart they encounter the large-scale structure of the corona uh, we do have now some observations of the large-scale structure. SUVI is able to occasionally do off-pointed mosaics. So I want to focus uh, in particular on one new technology. We've got the wide-field imaging is very well known. We are now able to implement slitless spectroscopy in the EUV. This is a grazed reflection grading, 5,000 lines per millimeter, and this allows us to build spe imaging spectrometers in the EUV and in the X-ray. Uh, one of these has flown on the Magix rocket, worked beautifully. What you get with this, you cover a huge temperature range, uh, and you have density-sensitive lines, and the Beautiful thing is that there are now methods uh, to invert the spectrum. And so you can get temperature and density, full sun, all at once. And when there's a flare, you see the core of the flare in a large number of lines. You also see the expanding shock front. And you can measure the strength of the shock, see it interact, with a large-scale structure and possibly be able to predict SEP acceleration. We believe they will help improve forecasting. And of course, we hope to get a chance to do it. And there have been many papers written about this method, the technique, and why it matters. So I'll stop there. Thank you. The Lunar Gateway is a space station that will be placed in orbit around the Moon. 
primarily a manned station that will be occasionally occupied, Gateway will house instruments that will help monitor space weather events. One of those instruments will be Hermes, the Heliophysics Environmental and Radiation Measurement Experimental Suite. The project scientist for Hermes is Bill Patterson, who in February of 2022 described its science goals. I'm Bill Patterson. I've been working for the past couple of years as a project scientist for this Hermes project. Hermes, uh, Hermes is an acronym, of course. It's the Heliophysics Environmental and Radiation Measurement Experiment Suite. Sort of a mouthful, um, not not as contrived as some acronyms. Happy to say, um, it actually makes a bit of sense. So it's, a, I think, it's a pretty good one. Hermes um, is a package of instrumentation, space weather instrumentation or heliophysics instrumentation that will be flying on the gateway and in fact um, it launches with the first two gateway modules. It's a uh, it's an heliophysics mission. Four in-situ instruments. Uh, these are meant to measure the uh, charged particle environment both at the low energies and at higher energies and to tie those uh, observations together and understand the interplanetary medium and the terrestrial magneto tail. Of course, we take a magnetometer along um, to measure the magnetic fields. Launch of the gateway is, is now, um, we're expecting November 2024. Certainly not earlier than November 2024 is, is the gateway line on this. And because uh, we're traveling out to the moon with uh, a low thrust uh, ion drive, it's actually going to take quite a while to spiral out there. It'll be about a one year transit to lunar orbit. And once we reach lunar orbit, we start a two year nominal science mission there. Actually, there's something quite fortunate about this, not under our control necessarily, but with one year transit and launch November 2024, we will arrive in lunar orbit just probably just shortly after uh, solar max for solar cycle 25. And since we're interested uh, in part in solar activity, this, uh, this turns out to be quite useful. Science here leverages a couple of things. I, I should say the instrumentation is, is heritage instrumentation. This was a direct admission because the opportunity came up with uh, not much time to get it together. Um, so it was directed to Goddard. The, the instruments were chosen uh, because of their high heritage. That actually turns out to be quite useful because, in fact, Gateway will be in this unique polar orbit and having other heliophysics assets at other locations um, allows us to conduct some studies that um, will investigate things like structure. Um, we'll be looking at some uh, fundamental topics in heliophysics. There's a couple of things to be read between the lines in, in this bullet. Um, one of these is that uh, we, we are not necessarily directly conducting any kind of um, lunar science, although uh, I'm, I'm certain that the measurements that we'll be providing are um, quite suitable for some investigations of, of the lunar surface and the lunar exosphere and, and the uh, interaction with the, the exterior medium. Um, and hopefully people will find a way to use the measurements to do that. Um, the other thing uh, is that this is, again, fundamental uh, heliophysical science. Uh, we uh, we are not doing conducting operational space weather. 
Our connection um, to operational space weather, though, is that um, we see this as a pathfinder for future space exploration payloads. Our belief is that um, for lunar exploration, we have uh, we have good assets at L1 to measure um, the in-situ environment approaching the moon. Uh, but, you know, in the future, if, if there are missions with crew conducting deep space exploration and they are well off the sun-earth line, it's probably going to be pretty prudent to take along some sort of uh, space weather monitoring system, uh, partly for the purpose of providing alerts, but um, maybe more importantly is that local measurements are going to be needed to help make uh, predictions that are, are relevant and accurate. So for Hermes, the science uh, objectives will be addressed by our instrument teams, but this is in collaboration with six external science teams. Um, these, are, these are interdisciplinary science teams that were selected during the past year or so. Um, and then the orbit of the gateway itself, which is uh, it's not a Keplerian orbit, it's a, it's a halo orbit, it has a seven-day period, so it goes around the moon four times during one revolution of the moon about the Earth. It's pretty eccentric, a 3,000-kilometer periapsis over the north pole of the moon and 70,000 kilometers beneath the uh, south pole. That, although there are other assets already in orbit at the moon, that's a, that's a unique feature that we make use of um, during this mission. Let me let me tell you a little bit about our science goals and objectives here. We have actually three separate goals, which we've designated A, B, and C. Goals A are related to the interplanetary medium transport of mass and energy in the solar wind. Goal B, because we spend uh, one, you know, approximately one week out of four in the magneto tail, uh, as does the moon, is to characterize energy topology and ion composition in, in the deep magneto tail. And, and so um, if, if you were to peruse these objectives over here, you would find that a lot of this has to do with examination of structures there. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Our, our goal C is rather different. Although these are heritage instruments, science teams have a lot of experience with uh, working with measurements uh, from the, the particle spectrometers, the, the energetic particle telescope, the magnetometer. Typically, these instruments ride on spacecraft that were designed for the purpose. They're magnetically clean. They have frequently spinners to provide full of the sky for the particle instrumentation and other factors here. That is far from the case with Gateway. You know, Gateway is, is designed uh, for exploration and for human habitation and, and as a docking port for other vehicles. And we expect that uh, the observational conditions are going to be non-ideal. So with regard to future exploration, if, if this is going to be necessary to carry space weather stations uh, in the future on vehicles with crew, this is a good opportunity for us to learn how to do this. And so we, um, we will be working with, for example, uh, European colleagues and Unda Mars office to develop this capability. And, and I think it's going to be significant challenge um, just to fully understand the measurements. But I also think that these teams are going to get there. So I think I sort of mentioned already to get scientific gain out of this mission, we really leverage three factors that are sort of equally weighted or, or dependent on one another. One is this, uh, this polar lunar orbit 
takes us out of the equatorial plane. Second is that we have instrumentation in common with other heliophysics uh, system observatory HSO missions. Um, so this will allow us to compare measurements to investigate structure. For example, for larger scale structures, you know, there's, there's spacecraft at, at L1 or somewhat quite a bit smaller structures that we can compare with, for example, MMS. For fine structure, quite conveniently, we have a, a couple of Themis uh, Artemis spacecraft in equatorial orbit at the moon. And then, uh, uh, addition to this, Hermes adds some measurement capabilities to this uh, this constellation in cislunar space that um, uh, that uh, really help complete the picture. So, these are the four instruments. Uh, Merit is our energetic. Uh, Particle Telescope, uh, Nemesis uh, wins award for best acronym. It's it's a magnetometer system, but it's it's three magnetometers because uh, they believe they'll need to use gradiometry to try and subtract the uh, interference fields coming from the gateway itself. Span is a uh, is a, a mass per charge. Uh, ion analyzer, a, a, a mass spectrometer. That's a capability that we add here. Uh, Themis doesn't have that. So for unambiguous identification of, for example, um, atmospheric ions from the Earth, that will contribute. And EEA is a, an electron electrostatic analyzer. Goal C, establish observational capabilities uh, for this package. So let me, let me just tell you, um, th these are some of the things we, we think are going to be challenges to the data analysis. And one is potential magnetism of elements near the Hermes by the ion drive. The ion drive will not operate while we're in lunar orbit. Electric currents, of course, are going to affect the magnetometer. Um, you know, spacecraft charging is, is going to be unusual. Um, we already have some predictions of that. Limited coverage of the sky, uh, similar to that. We, we have some obstructions that we have to deal with and then charge particle scattering. So, you know, although the Hermes objectives are heliophysics, we think that this can contribute quite a bit to studies of the moon. Uh, we'll see flux of terrestrial ions through the lunar surface, uh, additional information on wake structure, lunar proton albedo is, uh, is within our capabilities, and lunar pickup ions. Bill Patterson, the Hermes Project Scientist. As we now know, outer space is not entirely empty. It has tenuous plasma flowing through it. One of the early missions to study the solar wind was Themis, the Time, History, Events and Macroscale Interactions During Substorms. This involved five satellites that were launched in 2007. Their principal aim was to study how space weather initiates the aurorae. Two of the Themis satellites were, in 2010, directed out of high Earth orbit and placed into lunar orbit. They were renamed Artemis, uh, not to be confused with the current Artemis Humans to the Moon project. This original Artemis, A-R-T-E-M-I-S, stood for Acceleration, Reconnection, Turbulence and Electrodynamics of the Moon's Interaction with the Sun. Well, these satellites are still operating well beyond their two-year design life. Andre Runoff of the University of California, Los Angeles, is a member of the Themis Artemis science team. 
In February of 2022, he spoke on how these five spacecraft have been able to carry out multipoint investigations of the electromagnetic and plasma environment. Uh, my goal today is to inform you about current status of the Temis Artemis mission, which we'll just mention, and to share with you some ideas on how we can use Artemis measurements along with uh, the uh, Hermes suite and uh, potentially uh, SOFRs. Uh, lunar surface assets to address some interesting and compelling science questions. So first, a little bit about Artemis mission. Well, in our genealogy, Artemis is the daughter of, of Themis. Uh, Themis was the five spacecraft mission to study essentially magnetic substorms in, in the magnetosphere, the Earth magnetosphere. And uh, starting uh, 2009, the two of outermost Themis probes were sent to the deep space. And finally, uh, 2011, were injected into stable lunar orbit with roughly 26 hours period and 100 kilometers to 19,000 kilometers altitude from the lunar surface. With the Moon, the uh, Artemis spacecraft spent most of the time in the solar wind and three to four days every month in the Earth magnetotail. Deep Space Network became available for us in 2013 and it allows us to downlink large percents of our data in the highest possible resolution. Due to um, mission bias, so to speak, we bias to the magnetotail and we have 70% of the magnetotail data in highest resolution and some interesting events like lunar wakes in the solar wind in highest resolution. But it's programmable and we can change it. In terms of data coveraging so far, we coverage almost entire solar cycle 24. Okay, uh, a little bit about our measurements. The Artemis mission consists of two spin-stabilized equatorial orbiting probes equipped by Fluxgate magnetometer, which allows us to measure a magnetic field with resolution 4 to 120 vectors per second. Such coil magnetometer allows us to measure AC field up to 2 kilohertz Nyquist. Electric field instrument, we have four double probes in the equatorial, in the spin plane and uh, spin axis plane. Also, we have the suite of particle instruments, which includes the electrostatic analyzer to measure ion and electron fluxes from first electron volts to tens of kilo electron volts. So it's uh, so near-moon environment is unique plasma laboratory in multi-point observations will allow us to study very interesting regime in plasma physics in weak, highly fluctuating magnetic field with strong gradients like current sheets, uh, solar wind discontinuities, flux ropes, reconnection jet fronts, etc. With lunar gateway Hermes suite, we can do 
three-point measurements, Artemis probes are equatorial orbiting, while the gateway will be uh, polar orbiting. So that allows us to, to, to have three-point measurements with highly varying uh, interspacecraft separation. Really interesting opportunity for us to study uh, characterization of electromagnetic uh, lunar environment and particle acceleration. Lunar uh, Artemis and Hermes will provide information on electromagnetic and plasma conditions in near uh, moon space. And what we will be interested, first of all, uh, in this context is mapping to the lunar surface, which requires surface.